The scripture this morning is Revelation 6. Then I looked on as the Lamb opened up one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! So I looked, and there was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and was given a crown. And he went forth from victory to victory. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Out came another horse, fiery red. Its rider was allowed to take peace from the earth so that people would kill each other. He was given a large sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the, li- the third living creature say, Come! So I looked, and there was a black horse. Its rider held a balance for weighing in his hand. I heard what sounded like a voice from among the four living creatures. It said, a quart of wheat for a denarian, and three quarts of barley for a denarian, but don't damage the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. So I looked, and there was a pale green horse. Its rider's name was Death, and the grave was following right behind They were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, disease, and the wild animals of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar those who had been slaughtered on account of the word of God and the witness they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Holy and true master, how long will you wait before you pass judgment? How long before you require justice for our blood, which was shed by those who live on earth? Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little longer until their fellow servants and brothers and sisters, who were about to be killed as they were, were finished. I looked on as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as funeral clothing, and the entire moon turned red as blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its fruit when shaken by a strong wind. The sky disappeared like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the officials and the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and in the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the Lamb's wrath. The great day of wrath has come, and who is able to stand? My name is Megan. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity, and there's nothing like the silence that comes over a community after we hear about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. (laughs) Let's begin by acknowledging this is a deeply weird passage in a very strange book, and say a word of prayer as we dive in. God, we thank you for the prophets and the poets and the artists who have spoke to us deep truths of your character in ways that grip our imagination and cause us to see our lives and our world differently. We pray that even this morning, you would breathe through these words of John the seer, 
that we could see what he sees of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the, this particular book of Revelation, the piece of which we, we just heard, was written by John, who was a follower of Jesus, um, who at the time he wrote this letter was basically exiled on a prison island that was the ancient equivalent of Alcatraz. Like, this is not the place you wanted to be. And, and so John is writing from Alcatraz to a community of other people who are suffering. And th there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding that surrounds this particular letter of Revelation that John writes. Um, the, the purpose of this letter is not primarily to predict the future. John is not kind of sitting on his prison rock there thinking about how do I give people a timeline of all future events so they know exactly how things are going to go down. Um, Jesus said nobody's going to know that. He doesn't know that. John doesn't know that. I, I would think of the, the scene that we're reading described here is a lot more like, it's like John is an artist, and you've just walked into John's art gallery, and what is on display here, what is being featured today, is a series of paintings titled The Wrath of God. Right? All of these portraits are kind of gathered around this, this gallery, and all of them are exploring this theme of God's wrath. Now, I, I imagine that having this, this passage kind of recontextualized that way doesn't bring us a lot of comfort because most of us are not comfortable with the theme of the wrath of God as a point of painting or kind of theological discussion. I, I don't know what comes to, mind, to your mind when you hear that phrase, wrath of God, um, but for me, I think of a couple things. Um, one is the most famous sermon that has been preached in American history, which was basically about God dangling people like spiders on a single thread over the fire. And like, you got to do something before that thread snaps. I also think of um, back when Hurricane Katrina um, hit the U.S. about hearing preachers on TV that were telling people, you know, all of this happened in New Orleans because New Orleans was like uniquely sinful somehow. Like the, the wrath of God fell on this community. And for a lot of us, this kind of stuff, it just like viscerally turns our stomach because one, it makes God sound like a monster. And two, it just seems completely arbitrary. Like, wherever the wrath of God gets called on, it seems to have more to do with, like, the pet favorite sin of the preacher than it does to do with any larger principle about how God works. So, I don't know, I don't know many people who are super comfortable with this conversation. Um, but the other thing I'll say, um, I've had a number of conversations this year that I've never had with people before as a pastor, and they've been very interesting. Um, because one of the things I've learned is that when you encounter real evil, maybe for the first time, all of a sudden, this conversation about the wrath of God takes on a different tenor. Um, multiple times in the last year or two, I've had people come to me, and these are deeply like gentle, compassionate, peace-loving people who've talked about something that has happened in the world, a particular world leader, who was just bringing so much terror, so much destruction, doing so much evil that harms so many people, and they've said to me, Megan, do you think it's okay for me to pray that God just stops that person's heart? Is that an okay prayer? It's not a crazy question, right? Like, if this person would just, just stop breathing, like, all God has to do is give them a little zap, the heart rhythm stops, and millions of people are better off. Maybe millions of lives are saved. Um, you might not call that the wrath of God, but that's what we're asking for, right? Like, why doesn't God just give this person a stroke already and save the rest of us all sorts of misery? Like, when you see real evil, this conversation about wrath, it, it sounds very different. 
And it leaves us with this big question, kind of both sides of this equation. Uh, What place, if any, does wrath have in an image of a truly loving God? Like, we we at Trinity, we are a community that believe deeply in a God of love. So, So does wrath have any place in that conversation at all? And if it does, what is it? And this is not one of those topics we can kind of wiggle out of by being like, oh, wrath is an Old Testament God thing, but we got Jesus, so we're good. Because Jesus actually talks a lot about wrath. So, so does Paul. So, so does the book of Revelation. This is both an Old Testament and New Testament concept. So I want to posit something really radical to you on the basis of this theme kind of showing up all through Scripture. And this is the starting point for what I would say. A wrathless God cannot be loving. A wrathless God can't be loving. And it all depends on what we mean when we use the word wrath. And the problem a lot of us have when we come to this concept is when we hear about the wrath of God, we start thinking about wrath as a human emotion. When we talk about wrath in humans, what we typically mean is like somebody who's experiencing this deep sense of rage that just makes them want to like lash out and shred things. Like I'm wrathful and someone needs to suffer because they deserve it. But when the Bible talks about the wrath of God, it's not talking about that kind of ugly human emotion, emotional anger, a desire to harm. What the Bible is talking about when it speaks of the wrath of God is essentially an unwillingness to see innocent people suffer forever. An unwillingness to see the innocent suffer forever. A determination to see that evil has an end and that justice is done. Um, The wrath of God is God's right-making power. If you you take one phrase away, here it is. God's wrath is God's right-making, God's justice-making power. It's God's determination not to rest until everything in the world is as it should be. And this is why in this, in this kind of scene, this portrait of God's wrath we get in Revelation 6, John gives us the image of all of these martyrs. They're sitting on, under the altar and they're crying out to God, how long before you require justice for our blood? Like, God, are you going to take our suffering, our sacrifice, the injustice of what happened to us seriously? Um, We see this even in the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, when the first murder happens, and God says he hears the first murder victim, Abel, his blood crying up from the ground. Like, there's something in God that even after someone passes away, God can't stop hearing the cry of how deep the wrong was, the injustice that was done. Injustice demands a response. And that's the space this conversation is coming from. The compassion of God, the love of God that can't stop hearing the voices of the martyrs. Once we understand wrath that way, as it's God's right-making power, I think the real question for most of us becomes not a problem that like God shouldn't be that way. It really becomes a question of why is God so slow? Like, we're pretty pro-God making things right. We're pro-God establishing justice, so why isn't it happening now? This is the question of the martyrs under the altar in Revelation. Like, how long are you going to make us wait, God? And when I, when I think of the stories of American history and the experience of slaves in America, just the hundreds of years of incredible agony, I think that must have been like the Israelite slaves in Egypt, this huge question they're carrying. Like, God, when are you going to do something? 
Like, we know, we believe that you're just and that you'll make things right, but when? Why is this taking so long? Now, I've been convinced for a long time that the single most scandalous characteristic of God, the part of God that is hardest to understand, that nobody talks about, is God's incredible patience. This is the part of God that I can't, sometimes I can't wrap my head around, I just can't stomach it. I'm like, God, why are you so patient? And we don't really get a full answer to this, but we get one little snapshot. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans. And he says, don't you realize God's kindness, God's patience is supposed to lead you to change your heart and life? Like the, the point of God in this, in this conversation in Romans 2, Paul is actually talking about God's wrath and the fact that God's wrath, God's right-making power, God's corrective power hasn't been exercised yet. And Paul says this, the point of delaying that is so you have a chance to turn yourself around. I mean, God just cares so much about not losing a single person and not losing a single child that God wants to claim that God is exercising an incredible amount of patience, of kindness in delaying that wrath, that judgment, so we have a chance to learn something and do the right thing. But, but the whole the Bible makes this message again and again, and this is maybe the biggest message of the book of Revelation, don't confuse the patience of God with indifference. Patience and indifference, not the same thing. Like what you are experiencing now is God's patience, not God's permanent tolerance for wrong. There's a point that's going to come, and Jesus says it's going to come at the moment we least expect it, when God is going to shake the earth and all of these huge strongholds of evil and injustice are going to collapse. And you don't want to be living in those strongholds when they fall. That's the message of Revelation in a nutshell. There's going to be a point when God's going to shake the earth and every structure of evil and injustice will collapse and you don't want to be living in that building when the walls come down. So, so what is this like wrath of God, this right-making power, what does it look like actually in practice? Like when God does it, what happens? What does it look like? I think there are four things we're told to kind of picture as we imagine how this is exercised. Um, number one, and this is probably the most shocking revelation of the New Testament, the wrath of God is the wrath of a lamb. The wrath of God is the wrath of a lamb. Now, why does that matter? This, this is a game changer. <laughs> Um, the, the lamb in the book of Revelation, the lamb is the metaphor for Jesus all the way through this book. And the image of a lamb is taken from the sacrificial system of the ancient world, where when you did something wrong, you would sacrifice, you would have a priest kill on your behalf, a lamb, a sheep, of, an animal of some kind. And that animal was offered in your place so that you could be forgiven. So Revelation is using this, this image, a portrait of a lamb, as an image for Jesus who offers himself his own life so that the guilty can be forgiven. So, so when Revelation talks about these big portraits of the wrath of God, the most important piece of info Revelation gives you for, for imagining what this looks like is that the wrath of God is the wrath of the person who gave his life to save the guilty. The wrath of God is the wrath of a person who gave his life to save the guilty. 
Whatever wrath means, it's not going to look anything like what we think it's going to look like. Um, Romans 8 verse 1, Paul says this, there isn't any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, all the authors of the New Testament agree on this, including the book of Revelation. We get all of these really dramatic judgment scenes that are kind of hard to tease apart, but at the end of the day, no matter what comes, no matter what you've done, no matter what you pass through, no matter what the judgment looks like, in the book of Revelation, if you have placed yourself on the side of Jesus, if you have determined you will stick with him no matter what comes, at the other side of all these judgment scenes, you will be there standing. This is like the bedrock assurance that comes at the very beginning of the conversation. Whatever judgment means, whatever it looks like, if you stick beside Jesus, you will be standing on the other side. The wrath of God is the wrath of a lamb who gave himself to save the guilty. That's a pretty powerful assurance to come into this conversation about judgment with. The second thing I think we can say biblically about the wrath of God is that God's wrath is often expressed by giving us over to our own choices and their consequences. Um, You see this happen all over the Bible. Um, You see it happen in that story we just talked about with King Saul. Um, The people want a king. God says, you don't want this king, but God finally gives them what they ask for and it doesn't go well. Um, One of the more memorable spots for me this comes up is in Luke 19. Um, This is shortly before the death of Jesus. Um, Jesus is visiting the capital city, the, the group of people that is about to murder him. And this is what Jesus says. As he came to the city that's about to kill him and observed it, Jesus wept over it. And he said, If only you knew on this of all days the things that lead to peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you, encircle you, and attack you on all sides. They will crush you completely, you and the people within you. They won't leave one stone on the other because you didn't recognize the time of your gracious visit from God. What is Jesus saying to the city that's about to kill him? He's not saying, gosh darn it, you sinners, I'm mad at you, you screwed up again, and I'm sending in enemies to stomp you to the ground to give you what you deserve. What Jesus is doing here, he's weeping, he's sad, and he's saying, God sent me here to give you a chance, like you are on a road that is going to lead you to total pain and destruction. God sent me to give you a chance to turn and get on a better road. Like, it doesn't have to end this way. God sent me so it didn't have to end this way, and you were refusing to listen to me, and as a result, you're going to get the thing you're asking for, and I don't want that for you. Right? Like, throughout the Bible, again and again, most of the time, the wrath of God is expressed simply by allowing people to make a choice and experience the consequence. Um, I think, in fact, that this passage we just heard this morning in Revelation 6, you could, many people have argued that this is exactly what is happening in this passage. When these horsemen are unleashed, it's not that God is like, I'm mad and I need somebody to stomp. God is saying, like, I am releasing the consequences of the things you said you wanted. Like, here's your horse. Now, why does God do this? Why does God allow us to experience the consequences of our choices? Um, This is another thing that often gets overlooked when people read this book of Revelation. Again and again, the horses will ride, like disaster will fall, and there'll come a point in the story where God will say, 
but they didn't repent and turn still. They didn't repent and turn still. In other words, John is signaling here the whole point of even allowing these consequences to unfold is still so that people can realize they've taken a wrong turn and turn around. It's an opportunity to turn. It's not a desire to harm and punish. It's a way of getting your attention so you know this road is bad. I better pick another one. Most of the time, God's wrath is expressed simply by letting us experience the consequence of what we chose. Um, Third thing I think we can say about God's wrath. God's wrath is expressed by reordering the global landscape. God's wrath is expressed by reordering what the global landscape looks like. Um, You see this happening in verses 12 to 14 of Revelation 6. It's, remember, this is, this is imagery, this is metaphor, this is a painting. But John says, I looked as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. Everything starts shaking. And the stars fell from the sky as a fig drops its fruit when shaken by a strong wind. The sky disappeared like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and every island was moved from its place. The landscape is being reshaped. What was high is going down. What was low is coming up so that the ground on the other side looks fundamentally different where it comes in. This idea of the landscape being reshaped, it comes up in the birth of Jesus. This is the biblical author's, almost their favorite way to talk about a world that's being reordered. When the lamb rises up, evil has to fall. Uh, Structures that perpetuate death and destruction and injustice, those come down. And this is where there begins to be a divide in how we're experiencing wrath, because depending on where you're standing, the wrath of God turns out to be bad news or good news, right? The wrath of God can be the best thing in the world if you are at the bottom of the valley and you're the one being raised. It's not an inherently negative concept. It depends on where you've situated yourself before the earth begins to shake and be reordered, so, so Paul, or John is putting this on the table, not as a threat, but as a piece of information. The warning is, don't attach yourself, don't attach your heart, don't attach your life to the stuff that is going to be falling when God shakes things. Don't wrap yourself around the structure that's about to come down. Don't do that for your sake, because if you are wrapped around the things that God is about to shake down, You're going to lose stuff when it falls. You're going to suffer when it falls. And God doesn't want that for you. I mean, this is a a kind of merciful piece of counsel. Like, the landscape is about to be reordered. So make sure you're planting your feet and settling in your life and the place that will still be standing when the ground is leveled. The wrath of God always reorders the landscape. So don't tie yourself to what's falling down. And the fourth and the final thing I think we can say about the wrath of God from Scripture is that the primary instrument of God's wrath, the primary way that God's wrath is exercised is through telling the truth. Um, this is something a lot, we've talked about a lot when we've studied Revelation here in this congregation. Um, in, in the book of Revelation, Jesus shows up with a weapon. He has a sword, but do you all remember where that sword is in the book of Revelation every time Jesus carries it? It's in his mouth. 
The only weapon Jesus carries is the sword in his mouth. It's his tongue. Telling the truth is the instrument of God's wrath in the book of Revelation. I think it's so interesting in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, um, when, when the book really begins to press in this image of the wrath of God, the reaction of the kings and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everybody who's panicking is, John says, they hid themselves in caves and in the rocks. They hid themselves. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne. The impulse of everybody participating in evil and injustice is to hide because evil thrives in the dark. God's justice, biblically speaking, is primarily expressed by taking everything that is hidden, everything that is done in the dark, and just putting it out in the light and letting it be seen by everybody as it really is. And the interesting thing about truth as the instrument of God's wrath is that much like that reordering of the landscape, how that's good or bad depending on where you're standing, This idea of truth as the instrument of God's wrath, it's painful or not depending on what you've chosen, right? That doesn't have to be bad news for anybody at all. Jesus' people are the people who've chosen to walk in the light now, to, to do all the things they do in the open, to be truly the people that they claim to be. Jesus' people are the people who've chosen to tell the truth now, to live with integrity now, to keep nothing hidden. And those people, people like that, have no need to fear exposure at all. If God's wrath is primarily expressed in the truth, if you are living in the truth now, you have no reason to fear it. This is the portrait of God's wrath that John paints. It's a truth-telling function. It's bringing things out into the light. It's leveling the landscape so that something new can emerge. I mean, there's no condemnation for anyone who is in Jesus. That is the consistent message of the New Testament. There is no need for anyone who throws themselves on the mercy of Jesus to fear their ultimate destiny. The justice of God does not demand that anybody get what they deserve. The justice of God does not demand that anybody get what they deserve. The wrath of God is the wrath of a lamb who gave himself to spare the guilty. That's the good news. That's the great hope we're all standing on. But when we come into this new kingdom that Jesus is creating, this new world that God is bringing, Entering into that new world, it comes with a set of conditions. You have to be willing, if you want to live in Jesus' world, you have to be willing to live in the light because there is no darkness anymore. There's nowhere to hide. If you're going to live with him, it has to be out in the open. If you're going to live in the kingdom of Jesus, you have to be willing to release your grip on the things that are falling because that stuff is coming down. Right? Like, if you insist on binding yourself to it, you're just going to end up buried in the rubble. And if, if you're going to enter the kingdom of Jesus, the, the kind of core commitment you're making is that you will submit to his authority as the leader who says, like, how is this kingdom going to operate? And those things are true, not because God is angry, but precisely because God is loving. And there are ways of speaking and acting that don't have any place in a kingdom of love. God's wrath is God's determined love. God's wrath 
is God's determined love that stands between the world and everything that would debase and degrade and destroy. God's wrath is that wall of God's love that stands between the flourishing world and everything else that would debase and destroy it. I mean, because of that determination, because of that wall of the love of God that is holding all disaster back, this is the ending of the biblical story we look forward to. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, made as ready as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne say, Look, God's dwelling is here with humans. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people's. God himself will be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things had passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this reminder and the assurance of the Lamb that this story we are a part of does not end in our condemnation. It does not end in us being shut out. In fact, you are so patient. You wait and you wait and you call and you call, inviting us to come into this new world, this new city that you're longing to create for us. Lord, precisely because there's no condemnation, we can confess honestly that there are ways all of us here today, all of our lives are bound and tied to structures of evil and injustice you are preparing to level. Show us what it means for us, even this week, to move out of the things that are falling. Lord, we confess honestly that for all of us, there are things in our lives we are hiding in the dark. That we would be deeply afraid and ashamed for others to know about. We pray for those things as well, that we would have the courage to bring them into the light of your mercy. So that they no longer become sources of secret shame but testimonies of how great your healing and how great your forgiveness can be. Wash us clean and make us new and prepare us as full participants in this new world of beauty and justice and wholeness that you are bringing. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.